Are we there yet? The four words that every driver of young children does not want to hear. And if you're like me and you decide that in order to free yourself from the burden of that question, you'll simply outlaw asking it, you may find that one of your children decides that instead of asking, are we there yet, they'll come up with an alternative, something along the lines of, Father, how much more time until we arrive at our destination? The reality is everybody wants to know when we're there, how much longer. And I want you to know if you're feeling that way, because we have been several weeks in the book of Samuel, then I have some good news for you. The answer is we're almost there. In fact, today will be one of those days where you see a sign that makes you know you're close. Growing up in Canada, we would often take the month of February to escape to a warmer climate, and we would drive south from Ontario down the 81 and into Florida. And this is a several-day drive. But I remember distinctly as a child getting to the point where all the snow was finally gone. And we could get out of the car for lunch, and we could wear our running shoes and not our winter boots. That was the sign that we were close. I remember thinking to myself, Florida, Florida. One of my earliest memories is quite literally contemplating in my little young boy brain how it is that I would go and attain some level of financial security that would allow me to live in Florida. I assumed that anyone who could live in Florida would live in Florida. Anyone who could afford to live somewhere other than where it snowed would. The destination that we're headed to in our study of Samuel is way better than Florida. Where we're headed is a New Testament gospel that will pick up where the story ends. But several hundred years later, when all that has been promised here is going to be fulfilled in Christ. So I'm asking you to hold on for just a few more weeks. And in the meantime, for those of you who have been so encouraged by our time in the Old Testament, I want to tell you that the reason why we spend our time in the Old Covenant or Old Testament as well as in the New is because all of God's Word is God's Word. Amen? I don't know why some pastors stay only in the New Testament and miss two-thirds of their Bible. We want to make sure that at our church, we are teaching the whole counsel of God. And quite frankly, you're not going to understand the Old Testament fully unless you understand the New Testament. And you're not going to appreciate the New Testament until you see everything that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And so that's why we put these two things together. And if I could leave you with only one chapter from our study in the book of Samuel, it would be chapter 7. If you haven't done so already, take your Bibles and open them to 2 Samuel. And we're going to be looking at chapter 7 through 10 this morning. 2 Samuel 7 through 10. This entire series has been looking at the coming of the king. And that's a little bit of a double meaning because we're looking at the coming of David, but we know now that we also are looking to the coming of Christ. And we are at a point now where David's kingdom has been established. He is sitting on the throne. He is comfortably ensconced in Jerusalem. Everything seems to be going well. And it's in that context that God shows up again, not to give him a kingdom, but to give him a covenant. 
And so in these four chapters today, we're going to see four particular points. And each one will correspond to a chapter. So the first one is going to be Yahweh's covenant with the house of David. The second one is going to be David's conquest of the nations in Canaan. The third will be David's compassion for the house of Saul. And the fourth is going to be Israel's control of the promised land. Chapter 7 and chapter 9, we'll look at in more detail. Chapter 8 and chapter 10, we'll summarize because they are summaries of the way in which Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, fights for his people. But to begin with this morning, let's read this text. Listen carefully as I read section by section, chapter 7, and then I'll try to give you some notes of explanation as we go. This is God's word. Now when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But, and that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time when I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The first 17 verses of chapter 7 can be broken down into two main sections. The first one I would call the condescension. In fact, you'll notice at the beginning here that David is doing pretty well in the kingdom. And he thinks it would be a nice time for him to build a house for the ark of God. After all, he lives in a house of cedar. God's ark is in a tent. And so he brings Nathan the prophet in, as is right to do, and he says to Nathan, is this going to be something that Yahweh approves of? And Nathan says yes. I love the honesty of this text. Nathan didn't go and ask Yahweh. Nathan didn't act as a formal word from the Lord speaking prophet. Nathan just believed that it made sense to him, and he said to David, go for it, go build it. And God, in his kind condescension, comes down to Nathan. And in kindness, so that Nathan is not humiliated for all eternity, says to him, actually, Nathan, the answer is no. 
you weren't speaking for me. I am not going to allow David to build my house. And so Nathan, after probably a rather uh, unsettled night's sleep, goes back to David and has to clarify. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, remember how yesterday I said, go for it, this would be a great idea? Upon further reflection and upon an actual vision from Yahweh, I am going to revise my answer. And instead, I'm going to give you this word from the Lord. Now, if you have an English translation that spells Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's because it's the covenant name for God. It should be translated Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, actually says through the prophet Nathan to David that all this time I have dwelt among you in a tent and I've never once complained about it. I've never once told you to go build me a temple, build me a cathedral, build me something worthy of my name. As a matter of fact, I have condescended to be in a tent among you. Imagine if the general in the army didn't have his own special quarters, but stayed in the tents with the men. Imagine if the chief, imagine if the president, when the men were on the field of battle, came out and lived in a tent with them. We would say that that was a condescension. Condescension means to, to come down and to do something that others might think to be below you. But what an amazing picture of the actual heart of God. He says, I want you to know that I came down to be with you. I'm not asking for you right now to set me apart in this way. This is fulfilled in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 14, when it says that God came down and that Jesus Christ dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is actually the word tabernacled. He tented among us. Christ fulfilled this when he came to be a tent among us, live like one of us, take on flesh like one of us, even a human body that was truly man so that he could die for us as one of us. The condescension of God. But I want you to notice more than that, and that is the covenant Notice what he does here when he reveals through Nathan his plan. He says over and over again what he will do. He says in verse 9, I will make your name great. And in verse 10, I will appoint a place. And in verse 11, I will give you rest. And in verse 12, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. Verse 14, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. These are the things that God is going to do. God says, I'm going to do it. He doesn't say that it's conditional, that if David does this, I'll do this. If David builds me this, I will come and dwell among him. If David meets the basic criteria for his personal holiness, and if David provides what I need as an appropriate dwelling for my glory, then I'll do these things for him. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to do these things in a unilateral decision, not because of David, but in spite of David, not because of Israel, but in spite of Israel, and not because of his people, but in spite of his people. Brothers and sisters, can we just take this away as a bit of application? The blessings that you have in your life, the good that has been done to you, the joy, that for which you give thanks, the ultimate gift in the gospel and in salvation, isn't it wonderful to remember that it didn't come as a payment for something that you did? It is not a wage that you earned. And as much as we want to remind ourselves of that good truth, and I really want us to remember it this morning, I'm equally concerned that you remember that it is not your behavior that keeps it. In God's amazing kindness and grace to you, He chose to set forth His loving kindness upon you. 
And the way that it is kept is not by your faithfulness, but by His faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Savior. He is the one that never changes. And so, it's good to be reminded that it's His grace that saves. It's also good to be reminded that it's His grace that secures. And it's a good thing to be reminded that it's His grace that assures you that until the very end, He will keep you. And then He will lavish upon you all the rewards and all the wages and all the payment that should be poured out upon His own Son for perfect obedience, and He'll give it to you. There is so much for us to be thankful for. But if we cannot be thankful first and foremost for that, then everything else is going to be out of place and out of order. So we've seen the condescension in verses 1 to 7. We see that covenant in verses 8 to 17. But now I want you to see David's thanksgiving. We see his covenant, his throne established, but look at his thanksgiving. What an appropriate text to look at this week. I didn't plan this. I'm really grateful, though, that it popped up. If you're looking for the ultimate thanksgiving text, if you're a, maybe you're a visiting teacher or pastor, if you're looking for, for a great thanksgiving text, this is the one. David responds in an appropriate way. Now, before we get into it, let me tell you a couple things to look for. Number one, I want you to look for all the names of God, and I want you to look for the fact that he is very specific in what he says about God, the names of God and what he says about God. I'm going to give you just a little preview. Remember we talked about what Yahweh means, how it's capital L-O-R-D? There's going to be some twist here, so I want you to be looking for it. It's going to say Lord, lowercase O-R-D, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, capital G-O-D. Look down at your translation. Does it put it that way? Lord God? You're going to see some examples of this. I want to explain to you why this is important. Because what he is saying there is Adonai Yahweh. And because the word Yahweh is there, they're going to capitalize G-O-D, but that word Lord is another word often used for God, that word Adonai, and that's a very personal possessive name for God, my God. When you pray to God, do you pray to God as your God? Can you possess God? Can you own God? Can God belong to you? Those are questions that you would ask if you were to look at this text, and my answer to you is yes, and I want to explain what I mean by that. You can own Him, possess Him, as your own personal covenant-keeping God. Have you ever heard people say that they want you to know that you can have a personal relationship with God? Have you ever heard people say that? I don't know why they say that, because every human being has a personal relationship with God. God knows you individually. The question is, is my personal relationship with God one where he views me as an object of wrath, justly deserving his eternal punishment and spending conscious torment in hell forever, or does he have a personal relationship with me where I'm in a covenant relationship with him where he has sent his son to die for me so that he could grant to me all the riches that should go to his son? The personal relationship is going to happen either way. The question is, which personal relationship? David understands that he has it with the Lord. He is Adonai Yahweh. The other word here that is translated God is the word Elohim, just the word God. And that's sometimes used of false gods and sometimes used of the one true God. And then the one last, which I want you to look for as I'm reading this, is Lord of Hosts, capital L-O-R-D of Hosts. And this could be translated Lord of the Armies, the Lord of Power, Yahweh Saba. It's where in that wonderful hymn by Martin Luther, we get that line that says, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. This is the God who fights for you. So with that in mind, let's go back and look here at the text. David is praying with great gratitude. And in his thanksgiving, he says this, verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, Adonai Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord, Elohim, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Elohim. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord Elohim, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Adonai, my Yahweh God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, to make himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. And now, Adonai, Yahweh, my God, confirm before the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies, is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you, for you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made his revelation, this revelation, to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, my covenant-keeping God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Adonai Yahweh, my Yahweh God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What a powerful prayer of thanksgiving. In that, I want you to notice three things. David is very specific in what he's praying about. The first thing he prays about is the purposes of God. The purposes of God are unfolding in this prayer. And once again, if I could just draw your attention to this one little section over here in chapter 7, verse 21, it says, because of your promise and according to your own heart. Can you just pause for a moment and consider that? David is talking about what is going on in the heart of God. What is going on in the heart of Yahweh. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart was the center of everything that you were. And what this reveals to us about God himself is that he is a heart for his people. He quite specifically and intentionally deliberately, lavishly, perfectly loves you. His heart is for you. And, and if you're one of those people that struggle sometimes because you think that God is against you, that he's marked you out for some kind of punishment, that he doesn't favor you very much, that he doesn't like you, that, that of all of his children, you're the, you're the one he likes the least, that somehow you've gotten the, the short end of his affection. Can I just go back to this and remind you that what David is praying here is not just about himself, this pours out into all of his people. Obviously, originally, it was David's offspring and the people of Israel. But remember, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that as even Gentiles, we have been grafted in to the very people of God. His heart is for you. He loves you. He loves you. And to think that the sovereign God of the universe actually is mindful of who we are as individuals should be something that fills our heart with thanksgiving. But beyond the purpose, we also see that he's marked out a people. 
David is very clear in this, and he understands that what God is saying is that there will be a nation that he rules. Verse 23 says, who is like your people Israel? This nation, the covenant nation of God, Israel, under the monarchy of David and Solomon, and all the way until it ended in the captivity in Babylon, when Kaniah, the last of the kings, was taken into captivity, this monarchy that reigned over this people would be the ones who received the blessing of God. They were His chosen covenant people. And once again, we're reminded that as Gentiles in the new covenant, we've been grafted in as well. His purpose, His people, and then just one more, His promise. Look there at verse 28. He says, you have promised this good thing to your servant. May I just remind you that when God makes a promise, he never, ever goes back on it. When God makes a promise, you can be guaranteed that he will fulfill it. Do you know people that make promises and don't keep them? How does that feel when that happens to you? And then how many times afterwards when they make a promise do you have to keep telling yourself, don't believe it, don't believe it? Maybe a little bit more convicting would be, how many times have you broken promises? You know, we're reminded in our failures all the time of the need for somebody who would come and do only what is good all of the time, perfectly, and fulfill that law of God, and never be a liar, and never be a promise breaker. And once again, that was only Christ. Christ came to fulfill everything here. He came to show the heart of God. He came to call the people of God. He came to reveal the promises of God. And all of that is what drove the thanksgiving from David, and it should drive the thanksgiving from us. Now with that, we're going to move into another section here and look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, and then we'll see this also in chapter 10, is really the conquest of David over the nations of Canaan. Now, I'm going to do something here, which I hope will be helpful. We'll experiment. I'm hoping this is going to be helpful to you, because some of these names might not be common to you. You might not be able to visualize the geography of Israel. So when I talk about where the Philistines are versus where Israel is, or we talk about Syria or Ammon or Moab or Edom, it might all jumble together in your mind. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you references that you can relate to. Now, if you're visiting from out of town, this isn't going to help you either. So if you don't understand these cities and you don't understand the cities in the Bible, I am so sorry, but you are completely left out of this next section. But for those of you who live close by, this is how we're going to do it. When you think about Israel, I want you to think about Vista. That's great. We get to be Israel. Right now, here we are in Jerusalem. This is the center. This is Israel. Now, if you were to look out to our west, we're going to find Carlsbad. Carlsbad is where the Philistines live. Sorry if you're from Carlsbad, but that's where you are. You Carlsbad people, you're the Philistines. Now, the rest of you are smirking. We haven't got to you yet. Now, if you go east, straight down the 78, you get to Escondido, which is also Ammon. Now, Ammon is one of the two children that was born through an incestuous relationship with Lot in a cave. So there you go. But Ammon, one of these wicked nations off to the east, just south, if you're from Poway, you get to be Moab. Moab, his brother. And then way down south, Edom, all the ancestors of Esau, that's El Cajon. And then Syria, which is kind of a conglomeration of city-states that hadn't been fully organized yet, that's going to be Murrieta Temecula. So if you're Murrieta Temecula, you are Syria. Envision that. Northeast. You go down a little bit further south, Ammon, kind of like Escondido. A little bit further south, you get Moab, kind of like Poway. A little bit further south, you get down to El Cajon. That's Edom. And then you go west, and the Philistines, they're on the coast there, and that would be the Philistines. Now, you might be asking, well, what about Oceanside? Well, we're going to leave Oceanside out of that because that's where I live, all right? I'm just going to leave it out of it. 
There's one other group which I'm going to talk about, and that is Hiram of Tyre. He's the guy who sent cedar down to David. Of all the pagan kings, Hiram of Tyre, he's the only guy that seems to have really understood what God was doing, and he treated David properly, like he wanted good relationships with David. He did the same thing with Solomon later, okay? Those are the people from San Clemente. That's where, that's where Tyre is, all right? But with that kind of in your mind, and I, and I hope it's helpful, I'm not trying to be glib, I'm saying that might help us because geography is easy to get confused about in Scripture sometimes. Let's go back and look at what David did to these nation states. In chapter 8, we see that he begins to conquer them most decisively. It begins in verse 1 with the Philistines. And then in verse 2, we read about the defeat of Moab. And he takes all the Moabite army and he lays them out in three lines and he kills two and he leaves one alive. And he leaves those Moabites alive because they had to be servants of David, verse 2 at the last section. And the Moabites became servants to David and they brought tribute. You see, it's not always good to completely eradicate your enemy because then you have a big open space where no one's living. And it's very easy for other people to come in and become squatters. What you want to do is completely immobilize your enemy, take all of their power away, leave enough people present so that they protect their own land and property, make them prosperous enough so that they can grow crops, and then tax them heavily. That's what David did. So David leaves them in place. He kills two-thirds of the army. He controls them from that perspective. They become his servants, and they pay tribute. That just means taxes. And then you see that under this particular individual in verse 3, Hadadazar, Hadadazar. This is one of the rulers of that northeastern section of Syria. It's not exactly clear where that is, and that's why the author is giving it to us in this way. It was a large territory near the Euphrates. The Euphrates, remember, was that area just north of Israel. And from there, we see that he goes into battle against them and he kills 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 Syrian foot soldiers. And then down in verse 5, in Syria proper of Damascus, 22,000 Syrians. And then you'll notice in verse 6, the reason he did this is because Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. It is not just because David was a mighty warrior and he had a mighty army. It's because Yahweh did the fighting for him. At the risk of making an unjustified parallel, can I at least recommend that we look at this from our perspective and say that whenever there is anything good that is accomplished, it is not because of our own strength or ingenuity, but it's because God does it for us. I believe that when Jesus was teaching during his earthly ministry, one of the underlying emphases that he had was that you ought not to put everything under your own headship and rule. It's not about what you do and how you control and how hard you work. That the kingdom, as we're going to see described in the book of Matthew, is a kingdom that moves on based on what God has ordained to do, not based on what we are striving to do. And this here is a foreshadowing of that. You see, Yahweh goes out and does the fighting for them. He is the one who has ultimately conquered these nations. Now, what he achieves in all of this is the accumulation of resources that will be used to build the temple under Solomon. Verse 7 says he has shields of gold collected. Verse 8, he gets much bronze. Then he continues on in his campaign. And in verse 10, we see at the very end that he has articles of silver and gold and bronze. And he dedicates all of these to Yahweh, sets them apart, the silver and the gold and the bronze from all the nations he has subdued, and he sets that apart to build the temple. And then to summarize, verse 12, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Azar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. These are all the places from which he gathered all of this spoil. He continues to move south towards the Dead Sea where the Edomites live and killed 18,000 of them. And once again, verse 14, it is Yahweh who gave victory to David. In just this one section of chapter 8, we have represented here about 100,000 men that David killed. 100,000 men died at the hand of David and his soldiers as he went about clearing out 
that land of Canaan. And for those that he didn't kill, he put under subjection to him, and they paid taxes and tribute. He stole what they had that was of value, and he set it apart for the purposes of worshiping Yahweh. It's going to be used to build the temple of God. And what we see in this is a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do. Christ comes, and on the cross, when he says it is finished, he is saying that I have once and for all defeated the enemies. I am leading captivity captive. I am dragging behind me at this parade of the vanquished enemy. I have crushed the head of the serpent, and I am now going to allow you to celebrate my victory, and I'm going to give gifts to you. And we know that one day all of that kingdom is going to be consummated in his return when he rules and reigns forever and ever on this earth from the throne of David. That the ultimate fulfillment of everything we're reading about today is going to be in him. Well, we could say a lot more about that, but what we're going to need to do at this point is move on to chapter 9. And there we see this wonderful example of David's compassion for the house of Saul David's compassion for the house of Saul, it's broken down into two parts. There is a promise and there is a provision. Do you remember that when David and Jonathan made that covenant with each other, that Jonathan said to David, I know that Yahweh has chosen you to be king. And so even though my dad is the king right now, I know that somehow you're going to be king. And when you become king, I want to be your second in command. I want to be with you. I'm willing to lay down my right to the throne, or I'm going I'm to serve you. I'm going to come under you. And David makes a covenant with Jonathan, and he says, I will always protect your family. I won't be like the other kings who, when they come into power, the first thing they do is exterminate the family of the previous king. And you're going to see that over and over again if you were to read First and Second Kings. The new king comes to power, and he kills off all the children of the previous king. David says, I'm not going to do that. In fact, when I come to power, I'm going to protect you and your family. And now, many, many years later, maybe 20 years later, because everything in here is not chronological. You know that, right? It's thematic. We're putting this together as the historian writes it for us. It's not chronological. But we'll notice here in chapter 9, maybe 20 years later, David is at rest, and he's in his home, and, and, and the world is at peace, and things are good. He's got lots of wealth. He's got peace in the kingdom. And he's sort of reflecting. And he's, uh, he's sitting back and he's thinking about his life and his rule. And he asks this question. He says um, in verse 1, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left? Is there anyone that we could show this benevolence to? And he's informed about a man named Ziba. And Ziba, who had 15 sons and 20 servants, was responsible for managing Saul's estate. And he says, I want you to go and tell Ziba to bring this one last son of Jonathan and bring him to me. Now, I just want you to understand the drama here for a moment. This young man named Mephibosheth is crippled. We don't know exactly what happened, but the text says that during the assault on Israel under Saul, that his nurse picked him up and tried to rescue him, and somehow in the ensuing chaos dropped him, and his feet were broken or crippled or in some way didn't work. And up until this point, he's been living in the shadows. He's been in a really obscure, no-name town. He's old enough now to have a son of his own. And my guess is that he's trying to lay low, because when the new king comes to power, all he knows is that in that day and age, all the sons of the previous king got killed. So he's laying low. And now, 20 years later, he gets the knock at the door, and it's what he'd been fearing. Here comes somebody, and they're saying, you need to go meet David. You'd be terrified. You'd be thinking, that's it. I've had a good run here. I hid out for a while. I knew this would happen. And so here he comes in to meet David. And so that's the scene, this man being brought in in whatever means they had back then to help people who couldn't walk. He was obviously a rather pathetic sight. 
And he comes in to the presence of David. And I want you to see what David does. This is truly remarkable. Verse 9 of chapter 9. Actually, back up to verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Can you imagine? I mean, for 20 years you have been off in some obscure town just just trying to survive. And now the king brings you in and he's not going to kill you. In fact, he says, don't fear. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your father, all the land that belonged to your grandfather, and I am going to let you sit with me at my table. I'm going to invite you around my personal table. You're going to eat with the princes and the princesses of the kingdom. You're the one who's going to sit with me. You're the one who is going to be elevated. You're the one who, though you went, either you were part of the previous dynasty, I'm going to show that because of my covenant love for Jonathan, your father, I'm going to show that love for you. David is pouring out the grace upon this man. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ will do for us when we're invited to sit at his table forever. Never worthy of it, but only because of his grace. But verse 9 says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. The master here is talking about Saul. His grandson is Mephibosheth. And so what he says to him is that this one will sit at my table. You, Ziba, you and your men, you and your sons, 15 sons and 20 servants, your job is to go and to make sure that you cultivate the fields, that you look after the estate, that you bring in what it produces, and that you allow Mephibosheth's household to prosper, and you allow him to become wealthy, but he himself is going to eat at my table. It's amazing what David does for this man. This lavish promise, this amazing provision, and it all culminates in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Just a reminder of the fact that this man, though lame, this man, though maybe an outcast in that culture, was welcomed to the table of the king. You know, I can't help but, of course, look forward to what Christ does for us in that regard. In fact, he even describes it that way. The marriage supper of the Lamb. He describes a wedding feast. He says this is what it means not only to be invited, but to be clothed. You know, in that, in that parable, he says you're invited to the wedding feast, but you are also clothed in the proper garment. This is a picture of righteousness. And what you're clothed in is the righteousness of Christ, which makes you welcome there as everybody else at the table. You're, you're dressed appropriately. It's not just food that David gave Mephibosheth and his son. He would also dress him appropriately. He would allow him to sit like everybody else. You couldn't tell he was crippled because as he sat there at the table, he looked like everybody else. He was dressed like everybody else, treated like everybody else, respected like everybody else, not because of his own merit, but because of the grace that was given to him from the king. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what we're going to experience forever with our Lord? He's doing that for us here. The greater David will come and will do it for us. But we'll get to that when we start Matthew. For now, let's look at chapter 10 and we'll wrap this up. I want you to notice in chapter 10, two verses in particular, the fact that when this is sort of unfolding, as it were, there's two particular places I want you to see. One is in verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. This was 
the response of the Ammonite king. You see, David goes and he sends sort of words of greeting to the king of the Ammonites. And he says, I'm going to treat you well because of my respect for your father. And some of the people who were giving advice to the king said, David's men really aren't here to bless us. They're not here to pass along their condolences. They're here to spy. And so what we're going to do with those spies, we're going to show them a lesson. We're going to humiliate them. We're going to cut off half of their beard. And we're going to cut off their clothes in the middle so that they're naked from the waist down. And we're going to make these two men walk through town naked from the waist down. And we're just going to escort them right out to the laughing, mocking jeers of the men and the women of the city. Now, that is not the way you treat David. That is not the way you treat his servants. David had every serious good intention of not going to war against these Ammonites, evidently. And so because of this, everything changes. And he goes to war against the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were terrified now because they realized what has happened and David's coming after them. And so they bring in their Syrian friends. They look north to Syria and they say, come down and help us. And this is what you have in verses 9 and 10. You have Joab against the Syrians and Abishai against the Ammonites. Here's the, the report from the battlefield. Verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong, then I will come and I will help you. But be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord, may Yahweh do what seems good to him. That's the second verse I want you to see. Verse 12. This sums up, I think, every proper perspective. Be of good courage. Strengthen yourself. Be bold. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, for our families, for our children, for those that are watching us. But here's the most important thing. And may Yahweh do what seems good to him. At the end of the day, he is the one who is in control. He is the one who will fight for us. Well, this ends with a massive victory for David again. Verse 18, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians 700 men in the chariots and 40,000 horsemen. And he wounded the commander of the army so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of the leaders in Syria saw what had happened, they made peace with Israel, and they became subjects to them, so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. As these chapters close on the life of David, we see him at rest. He has already established himself as king. He has had a house built for him. He has established rulers, not only within his household, but over the priesthood as well. We saw that, though we didn't read it back here, in case you're interested, in chapter 8, verses 15 through 18. David reigns over all Israel. He sets up people over the army and over the house of God, and his own sons serve as priests. But if there's one phrase that I would use to summarize where we're at at this point in David's life, it's this, and it's in chapter 8, verse 15, the second part. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is the high point. He's building up, amassing vast wealth from the other nations and sanctifying it for the purpose of building God a temple. He has put to death all of his enemies, and the one that he has allowed to live are paying him taxes. The people are looking at him as being the perfect example of what a human king is to be. The Lord is filling his household with children, with sons and daughters. And there is relative peace there in the kingdom. David is living out, as it were, the very foreshadowing of the greater David that would come. There's peace and equity in the kingdom. And you would think at this point, David lives happily ever after. That at this point, God's given him everything. At this point, he's got nothing that he's lacking. At this point, everything is great. He is going to just follow Yahweh in perfect submission and obedience until he goes to rest with his fathers. 
Unfortunately, that's not the way it works with human leaders. And as we'll see next week, from the very high point described here of David's rule, we're going to watch him plummet to one of the lowest points on record and one that everybody is made familiar with and will endure for all eternity in the inscripturated word of God. We've already seen that the mighty have fallen, but as we will see, even this mighty one is able to fall. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time in the text this morning. What an amazing account of this man, David, whom you set your covenant love upon, whom you established as king over Israel. This covenant that you established with him, fulfilled in your son, and still to be fully consummated upon his return is one that we look to with great thanksgiving and joy as we see your kind purposes that are good for us. Please comfort your people this morning with the reminder that you love them and that you have good purposes for them no matter what they're enduring today. Father, we lift up the members of our congregation who are suffering physically right now. We think about Dan Gavin. We think about Barb Waite. Those who are enduring acute medical challenges that are so overwhelming that you would comfort them today, that even in the midst of their pain and sorrow, that, that you are the one who is attending to them as the God who has a heart for them. We thank you for making us your people. There's a lot of talk these days, Father, about your people and remind us that we are your people, that those who are in Christ are your people, that your covenant love has been poured out upon your church that we would be those who respond to you in bold confidence that you will only do for us what is good and right. Lord, for your promises. You've said that you will fulfill these words to your people, and so we hold you to that. We know that it gives you honor and glory by the magnitude of the expectation that we place on you because of the perfect fulfillment that you have promised for every one of your words. We look forward with anticipation for how you will, in your way and in your time, bring to perfect conclusion and consummation all that you have intended throughout redemptive history. Comfort us this day with these words. In your name we pray. Amen.